Today's scripture comes from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Um, good afternoon. Oh, excuse me. Good afternoon. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is John. I'm one of the pastors here. And let me take this opportunity now, now to welcome all of you for joining us uh, this Lord's Day as we worship together. I just want to uh, draw your attention to something before we jump into prayer. If you look inside your bulletin, you'll notice that there is an insert there with a series of questions. Uh, Starting this week, we are going to start including in our sermons the questions that we go through in our community groups every week. community group or our small group ministry uh, uses the sermon as the basis of our discussion because we want to make sure that what we say on Sunday ties into what you guys do and share and live out every week together and as you live out in the world. And so starting today, we are going to include the actual questions in the study so that you can be prepared going into community group with the answers that you want to have with the sermon fresh in your mind. But also for those of you who are not currently participating in community group, just to show you what you're missing out. Yes, really amazing stuff, right? <laughs> but anyway, we want to use that as a, maybe a way to incentivize you and encourage you to consider being part of a community group because we firmly believe here at NCF that the way you grow up in the gospel is by connecting to God in Christ-centered worship, but also connecting in one another in Christ-like fellowship. So we take that opportunity now to just fill it out as we go through the message and also use that as a way as an encouragement from our end to have you be a part of our community group because we firmly believe that it is not time wasted, but rather time much benefited for your soul, for this church family, and also for this city that we are a part of. So without further ado, would you now join me in prayer as we get ready? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your continued grace and mercy. Father, even though we strive and we struggle and we move against the tide and as we fail in many ways in living out our calling and our identity as followers of Jesus, nevertheless, we come to you once again eager and anticipatory of your grace to be upon us. Father, when your saints gather to worship, you are among us and you promise that in your presence that we find our hope, our peace, our joy, our love, And so, Father, would you refresh our spirits, strengthen our hearts, and sharpen our minds once again so that we could go back out into this world as people who have been changed and transformed, ready to be agents of change and transformation in a world that desperately needs it. Father, would you bless us as we hear your word being preached today. And we ask especially that you would bless this message in spite of the messenger who brings it. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're continuing a sermon series that we started a few weeks ago entitled METS, M-E-T-S. Sorry, Yankee fans, okay? But METS, and that word stands for Members Equip to Serve. And the purpose of this series is to look at the five crucial ministries that God calls every Christian to serve as a minister. 
You see, one of the things that we've been saying over and over in this series is that God does not just call ordained ministers like myself or Pastor James to be ministers of God. No, the Bible says it very clearly that if you are a follower of Jesus, even though you're not an official ordained minister of the gospel, you are a minister of the gospel. God has called you and I to be ministers of God as we live out our faith in our families, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our churches, in this world. And today, we're continuing our look at the third category of ministry that God calls every Christian to serve in, which is the ministry to our families. Two weeks ago, we looked at one aspect of this ministry to our families, which is the ministry in our marriages. Well, today, we're going to look at another aspect of our ministry to our families, and that is the ministry of parenting. I want to talk to you guys today about parenting. Now, before I go on, I know we have a lot of singles in this room, and we have a lot of non-parents in here. And you may be tempted to think, oh my gosh, why did I come to church today listening to a sermon on parenting? Because you're not a parent right now, you're not in this stage of life, and so you may think, you know, understandably so, that this message is very irrelevant, it doesn't apply to you, and hence you're just wasting the next 35 to 40 minutes. But I would beg to differ for two reasons. Reason number one, even though some of you, many of you may not be parents now, the all likelihood is you will be parents, okay? Chances are, statistically speaking, you will get married and you will have babies. And if you're part of this church family, you'll probably have lots of babies with the way that we're going right now, okay? And believe me when I tell you, you want to learn this stuff now before you have kids because if you try to learn this stuff after you have kids, good luck. Okay, with the wrestling of postpartum hormones, either from your wife or yourself, poopy diapers and lack of sleep, you're not going to have an opportunity to learn what biblical parenting is all about. And so it is wise for you to prepare yourself now while you have the strength, while you have the bandwidth, while you have the energy to learn this thing and let it marinate and prepare you for when that wonderful day comes when you will be a mom and dad. But what about those of you who don't feel called to be a parent? Maybe you've been at NCF for a couple years now and you've been surrounded by all of our loud, crazy kids and you're like, you know, God, I don't think I'm going to do this. You know, maybe you really genuinely feel that God may not call you to ever be a biological parent. Is this message relevant to you? Yes, it is. Because even though you may not be a biological parent, the Bible says you are a spiritual parent. As being a member of the church family, You are a spiritual surrogate family. You see, not all adult Christians ever become biological Christians, but all adult Christians who are called by God to be part of a church family are going to be spiritual parents. Some of you in here have worked in Sunday school, Bible study, toddler ministry. You function as a spiritual parent over the numerous amounts of children that we have running around here and the numerous amounts of children that are still coming our way, okay? See a lot of pregnant bellies around here this morning? Yeah, there's more to come, I guarantee it. And so it would be wise for even for us, those of us who don't feel called to be a parent, those who, us, who imagine that we'll never be a parent, to still understand the principles of parenting because those same principles will equip you to serve the children of the church. Okay, so this message is really relevant for all of us, current parents now, future parents later, and spiritual parents whenever God calls you to serve in the church in that way. So with that in mind, three things I want to share with you this morning on the topic of parenting. First, let's talk about the mission of parenting. Then we're going to talk about the goal of parenting. And then finally, we're going to end it with the model of parenting. The mission, the goals, and the model for parenting. Okay, let's jump right in. First, the mission of parenting. We're going to go backwards in our study today in our text. So let's skip down to the bottom verse, verse 4, where Paul writes these words. Fathers... 
Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Here, Paul identifies for us what the mission of parenting is. He says it in the second half of verse 4, where he says, Bring up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, for those of you who are familiar with the Bible, your spider senses are probably tingling right now because of those two words that Paul uses in these verses. Discipline and instruction. Those words look very familiar to you. And the reason why they look very familiar to you is because one of the more popular books in the Old Testament, in fact, of the whole Bible, the book of Proverbs, uses those two words over and over and over and over again. In fact, if you did a word search on those two words, you would find that the book of Proverbs has those two words the most out of any other book in the entire Bible. Just to give you an example of what it says, let me read you two samples of Proverbs. Proverbs 13, verse 24 says this, Whoever spares the rod hates their children, but the one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 8 says this, Listen, my son, to your father's instructions, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. They are a garland to grace your head and a chain to adorn your neck. From these passages of Proverbs, we can see clearly That both the father and the mother are responsible in providing discipline and instruction when it comes to their children. So you're probably wondering then, why does Paul single out fathers in verse 4 of our passage when the Bible speaks of both the father and the mother to provide instruction and discipline? Why doesn't he include mothers? Why is Paul only talking to fathers here in our passage in verse 4? Well, in order to understand why, you have to know a little bit about the background that Paul is writing to. Okay? During the time of Paul, the concept of fatherhood was very different to the concept of fatherhood that we see in the Bible. Fathers back in the days of the Roman Empire were given certain rights and privileges that the Bible would never authorize and would never allow a father to do. For example, this concept known as pater familias. There was a concept of fatherhood in the Roman Empire known as pater familias that gave fathers certain rights and privileges that the Bible would say is absolutely Wrong. And to give you what that understanding is, let me read to you the Oxford Classical Dictionary of that concept, pater familias. It says this, quote, At the head of the Roman family was the pater familias, who exercised a sovereign authority over all members of his family. The autocratic character of the patria potestas manifested itself not only in the father's right to punish, but also in his right to kill his newborn. The pater familias had a full right of disposal over his children as he did over slaves and things. In other words, fathers during the Roman culture were given absolute right to abuse, to sell, and even murder his own children. In other words, fathers in the days of the Roman Empire could do whatever they wanted to do. Whatever fit their boat, whatever whimsical attitude they may have had towards their kids, they could do without any sort of criminal prosecution, without any consequences from the law whatsoever. Okay? And so it is in this context that Paul singles out fathers and gives them this dire warning in the middle of verse 4 where he says, Do not, fathers, provoke your children into anger. Okay? Paul is wanting to teach the Ephesians then when it comes to figuring out what your mission is, parents, do not look at the surrounding culture to teach you what that is. Because if you do, you're going to end up with a bunch of angry children who are just going to unleash that anger back out into the world, making it more vile and more violent. Now, some of you are probably thinking to yourself, thank God we don't live in the Roman Empire. Thank God 
you know, that fathers or mothers, for that fact, could not get away with these kinds of things that were popular during the Roman Empire. Thank God we're not as brutal and primitive as the Romans. But before you have a little bit of a condescending, judgmental attitude, let me ask you this question. Are children today any less angry now than they were back then? Do you think children today are less vile, less violent, and more respectful and more pure? Do you think children today, even though we don't live in a society that practices the pater familias, even though we don't live in a brutal society like the Roman Empire, do you genuinely believe that therefore, as a result, children today are much happier, much nicer, much safer to be around? Parent.com recently came out with an article entitled, Why Are Kids So Angry? And it starts off with these words, kids are kids, which means that when they get mad, they're not especially diplomatic about it. What's disturbing, though, is that more and more kids seem unable to stop at ordinary expressions of childish ire. I see hundreds of kids each year, and I'm shocked by the level of aggressiveness I'm observing, says Edward Christopherson, Ph.D., a psychologist at Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City. According to experts today, children today are more violent, they're more vile, and they're much more angry. And the question is, how do you explain that? When this idea of the pater familias doesn't exist in our society, I'm sure there is abuse in our society as well, but not as prevalent as it was in the Roman Empire. And yet it seems that our young generation is getting more disillusioned, more jaded, more bitter, more angry. How do we explain that? How do we explain this kind of animosity and violence and vileness that we see in the younger generation over and over and over again? Could it be that Paul is trying to teach us something more specifically than how we specifically treat our kids. And what I mean by that is maybe, just maybe, the problem is not simply that we abuse kids or mistreat them that causes the violent anger to come out. Maybe it's something deeper. In fact, I would argue that is exactly what Paul is saying. And to show you what I mean, put that definition back up of uh, paterfamilias. You see that word right in the middle of that quote, sovereign authority? You see that? I should have underlined it, but you see it right there. What is sovereign authority? It's authority where you can do whatever you want without ever being held accountable to how you exercise that authority, right? That was the underlying assumption behind all Roman fathers back in the days of the Roman Empire. That is what fueled and drive their abusive behavior, right? Parents can do whatever they want, however they want a parent, and they feel they'll get away with it. But let me ask you. Is abuse and, and mistreatment the only expression of sovereign authority if you're a parent? Do you think if a parent wants to do whatever he wants that it's always just going to come out in the form of abuse or mistreatment? Isn't it possible also that if a parent thinks he can get away with every, whatever he wants, however he wants a parent, that he can do the other thing like not be involved in his child's life, be absent, right? Be uninvolved, neglect your child and not do anything, not put a hand on that child, but also not be around that child whatsoever. Yes. And let me ask you, what is the result of that kind of parenting? Anger, right? Bitterness, violence. You guys heard the recent Kelly Clarkson song, Piece by Piece? She sang a couple months ago at the American Idol a competition on television. It's a very hard song to listen to. It's a song that she dedicated to her father. Well, maybe dedication is not the right word. It's a song about her father. And she's angry at her dad violently angry at her dad. Why? Because he abused her? Because he, he, he mistreated her? No. 
because he walked out on her, neglected her, right? He completely forsake her. See, you can be an abusive and suffocating parent making your child angry, or you can be a neglectful and absent person parent towards your child, which will make them angry. But the fundamental thing is, the fundamental problem is, is that both of these behaviors carry the same underlying assumption, which is I can parent however I want to parent. I can use this authority or not use this this authority that I have and just get away with whatever I want to do in terms of how I parent my child. You see, whether parenting manifests in the form of abuse or uninvolved neglect, it all carries the same assumption, absolute sovereign authority, which according to Paul always leads to angry children who will therefore there unleash that anger out into the world, making it more toxic, more violent, and more vile. That is the problem that Paul is saying. See, Paul is not simply challenging us parents to not be abusive towards our kids. He's really challenging us to not carry the same assumption of these Roman fathers. Don't parent with the attitude that you have supreme authority over your kids. That's what basically he's saying. And so here's the question. If we're not to parent our children, whether biological or spiritual, with a sense of superior absolute authority, what kind of authority should we parent our kids with? Well, I want to read to you a quote from a pastor named Chip Ingram because I think he nails at the answer. He says this, When your children transfer their primary love, submission, and dependence from you to God, that's when you know you hit the bullseye of parenting. That right there is the mission of parenting. That is the mission. This is what you as a parent should be working towards, which means when you exercise authority over your children, you should see your authority as a borrowed authority, as a stewarded authority, authority that does not inherently belong to you, but is temporarily yours for a certain season of your child's life, to which eventually you're going to have to no longer exercise over your kids as they get older, right? That should be the underlying assumption behind all of your instructions and discipline that you provide for your kids. Or to put it another way, your mission as a parent is not to get your children to be their own authority, which just ends up happening when you're too permissive, when you let them do whatever they want, or when you're so negligent and you don't do any parenting. Nor is it your mission as a parent to get your child to always see you as their authority, which is what happens when you rule with an iron fist and you're an authoritarian parent. No, the mission of parenting is to instruct and discipline your child to where they will always see God as their authority. Let me say that again. The mission of a parent is to instruct and discipline your child to where they will always see God as their authority. Not see themselves as their own authority, not always see you as their authority, but always see God as their authority. That is your mission. And that's only going to happen if you understand that your authority over your child is a provisional authority. It's a temporary authority. It's not an authority that you can always hang over them even when they're in their 30s, married, and have their own kids. No. Your authority is a stewarded authority. It's a borrowed authority. It's a temporary authority. And it's an authority that you will have to answer to God one day in terms of how you used his authority while you parented your child in their formative years. That is the mission of parenting. But the question is, what does that exactly entail to get your child to always see God as their authority, not themselves or you? What does that practically look like? Well, to answer those questions, let me go to my next point, the goals of parenting. Let's read verse 2 and 3 again of our passage where Paul writes this. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you 
and that you may live long in the land. Here in these two verses, Paul identifies for us some practical goals that we are to have as parenting. Now, some of you are like, uh, Pastor John, I don't see any practical goals there at all. Oh, but they're there. Let me show you. You see that little phrase at the end of verse 3, that, it may live, that you may live long in the land? That little phrase right there has for us some real clear practical goals that we as parents, biological and spiritual, need to hit as we raise these children up in the Lord. Okay? Let me explain. You may not realize this or not, but in these two verses, Paul is quoting one of the Ten Commandments. Do you guys know which one it is? Commandment number five, right? Honor your father and mother. And here's what you need to understand about the Ten Commandments in terms of the background. God gave his people, the people of Israel, the Ten Commandments prior to, before they entered into the promised land, the land of Canaan. Okay, that's the land that Paul is referring to in verse 3. And when you read the book of Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, which are the books in the Old Testament that chronicles the background behind the Ten Commandments, there you will discover three major dangers that were awaiting God's people as they entered into the promised land. There was the danger of idolatry. There was the danger of fear, sinful fear, and there was the danger of greed. Idolatry, sinful fear, and greed. And God put the fifth commandment as part of the Ten Commandments because he wanted to instruct parents to make sure that they parented their child so that they would never come under the dangers of these three dangers, of idolatry, of sinful fear, and greed. And from those three dangers that still exist today for our children, we can extrapolate three practical goals of parenting from a Christian perspective. You ready for them? Here they are. Goal number one, expose your children to the right influence. Goal number two, teach your children to suffer well. And goal number three, teach your children to be good stewards. Expose your kids to the right influence, teach your children to suffer well, and teach your children to be good stewards. Let's quickly go through them. First, teach your kids the right influence. You know, one of the commands that God always told parents during this time was make sure that when you go into the promised land, parents, don't allow your children to marry any of the indigenous people already living in the land. Why? Why didn't God want his people to intermarry with the people already living in the land of Canaan? Deuteronomy chapter 7 tells us this. You must not intermarry with them and do not let your daughters and sons marry their sons and daughters. Why? For they will lead your children away from me to worship other gods. One of the constant dangers that Israelite parents had to deal with was the concern of their children coming under the wrong influence in such a way that they would fall into sin and worse, they would fall away from God and worship other false gods, gods that were not real, gods that could not save. And as Christian parents, that is the danger we need to protect our children from as well. It goes without saying. Children are social sponges. They just absorb everything that they see, hear, and touch. They adopt all the attitudes, the mindset, the vocabulary, the, the behaviors of those that they associate with. And the people that largely determine who children can associate with and not associate with are mom and dad. Right? Biological moms and dads and spiritual moms and dads in the church. Okay? When a parent does not take this seriously, they expose their children to the danger of coming under the wrong influence. Parents, when you replace yourself with a television or with a game console or with the internet or with a group of friends that you do not know who they are and just let your children go on their way unsupervised, not guarding their minds and their hearts and their interactions, you are exposing your child to the danger of bad influence. Influence that will not only lead them to sin, but influence that could lead them away from God. 
Parents, you are called to be the first responders in terms of what your children watch, what your children hear, and who your children interact with. And what that practically means is that you have to be present in your child's life, not once a week, not once every three days, but every day that you are with them. This involves talking with them, praying with them, studying the Bible with them, having conversations with them, playing with them, and knowing who your child plays with. You need to remember that you have to guard your child's heart because they are at a vulnerable stage where they have no filter. They have no way of discerning what is good, what is bad. That's why you are their parent. That's why you are there to make sure that they don't get infected and perverted in how they think and understand themselves, the world, and God. That's the first goal. You have to make sure they come under the right influence. The second goal of parenting is to teach your children to suffer well. Right before God's people were at the border of the promised land and God said, go in, go get it. You know what they did? They chickened out. They wouldn't go in. Like, no, we're not going in. Why? Why wouldn't you want to go into the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey? Numbers 14, verses 1 to 4 says this. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Here we see God's people so filled with fear, sinful fear. Why? Because they see this beautiful land. But you know what else they see? They see struggle. They see trials and tribulations. They see challenges. They see suffering. Right? And because they see suffering, they don't want to go in. Why? Because their attitude is, I refuse to suffer. And I Most of all, don't want my children to suffer at all. So we're not going in. We're going to disobey God, and we're not going to allow ourselves, and especially our kids, to suffer. That's what prevented them from trusting in God and obeying God. But as Christian parents, one of the things that we need to recognize is that God commands us to teach our kids to suffer well. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, parents, thou shalt prevent your child from ever suffering. You don't find that commandment in the Bible. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says you are going to suffer. If you are a human being living in a fallen world, you will suffer. That you also refers to your kids, parents. I know in our hearts, as a father of three, I feel it a lot. I don't want my kids to suffer at all. I want to make sure they never suffer. But I'm living in a deluded world, and if that's how you feel, you're living in a deluded world as well. God has promised us that not only are we going to suffer, but your kids are going to suffer. And as parents, it is up to you to equip your children in a way to where when they suffer experience, they become better people, not bitter people. That's what parenting is called, that's what parenting calls us to do. When our children suffer, we have to teach them in a way that they can grow from it, not shrivel from it. Listen again to how Pastor Chip Ingram puts it. It's so beautiful to how he says it. He says this, most children... Growing up in developed countries like America have gotten the message that suffering is abnormal. When anything goes wrong, they feel deprived. When a crisis comes along, many modern children want to know who's at fault and why they're getting such a raw deal. Give your children a coherent biblical understanding of suffering. Make sure they grasp the reality of living in a broken, fallen world. They need to know two basic facts. 
Life is hard, but God is good. And life is unjust, but God is sovereign. Teach your children that God will take the unfair, unjust, painful, evil circumstances of their lives and mix them with his goodness and sovereignty. Your children need to know that they will suffer, but God is good, and he's ultimately in control. Whatever injustice they face, God will eventually vindicate them. Whatever hardship they go through, God can bring fruitfulness and blessings out of it. They can face anything in life if you taught them those principles from an early age. As parents, we need to teach our children to suffer well in an unfaithful world by teaching them about their faithful God. Let me say that again. As parents, we are called to teach our children to suffer well in an unfaithful world by teaching them about their faithful God. That's the second goal of parenting. The third and final goal of parenting that we see in this passage is that we are called as parents to teach our children, the next generation, to be good stewards. Good stewards. I said this earlier before, but one of the ways that God described the promised land was that it was a bountiful land. It was a land flowing with milk and honey, right? Basically, in other words, this was a very, very, very wealthy land. It was prime real estate back in the day, all right? It was a luxurious land. It was filled with resources. And as a result, there was a hidden danger attached to that, and that is greed. Lots and lots of greed. God knew that when his people came into this luxurious land filled with so much stuff that the temptation for these people, his people, to become greedy, selfish people was very high. And as a result, he said these words in Deuteronomy chapter 8. He says this, speaking through Moses. So obey the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land of flowing streams and pools of water with fountains and springs that gush out in the valleys and hills. It is a land of wheat and barley, of grapevines, fig trees and pomegranates, of olive oil and honey. It is a land where food is plentiful and nothing is lacking. It is a land where iron is as common as stone and copper is as abundant in the hills. When you have eaten your fill, be sure to praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. But that is the time to be careful. Beware that in your plenty you do not forget the Lord your God and disobey his commands, regulations, and decrees that I am giving you today. For when you have become full and prosperous and have built fine homes to live in, and when your flocks and herds have become large and your silver and gold have multiplied along with everyone else, be careful. Do not become proud at that time and forget the Lord your God who rescued you from the slavery in the land of Egypt. Do not forget that he led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its poisonous snakes and scorpions where it was hot and dry. He gave you water from the rock. He fed you with manna in the wilderness, an unknown food to your ancestors. He did this to humble you and to test you for your own good. He did all this so that you would never say to yourself, I have achieved this wealth with my own strength and energy. Remember the Lord your God. He is the one who gives you power to be successful. As parents, we want our children to be successful. We want them to be accomplished. We want them to go to the best schools, live in the best neighborhoods, get the best job, live in the best house in the neighborhood. There's nothing wrong with that. We want our children to thrive. But Paul says, be careful. Because one of the things that you are called to do as a parent is to make sure that your children don't get a big head, that they don't think that the reason why they're so blessed and they're so successful and they're so amazing is because of them. The danger that we have in this generation is that we teach our children to take credit for what God has done in their lives. Rather than having them recognize it is by God's mercy and grace that your 
life is as good as it is, son, daughter. We do no favors to our children when we lie to them and say, you're the reason why you're so great. You're the reason why you're so smart. You're the reason why you're so successful. Or worse, I'm the reason why you're so smart. I'm the reason why you're so successful. I'm the reason why you're so rich. So give me some yongton, right? We must teach our children to recognize that all that they have, including their good looks, their awesome, talented body, their brilliant minds, doesn't come from them, doesn't come from you, it comes from God. If you don't do that, you are going to create a monster. You're going to create a person who thinks that they are the ones through whom all blessings flow. Praise me. They're going to think that they're God, that they're the master of their own soul, that they are the master of the universe, that they are God. And therefore, when you have such a superiority mindset, how can you not feel that you're better than other people, especially those who are not as successful, those who are struggling, those who are not as advantaged as you are or as your child is? We are called by God to teach our children the concept of biblical stewardship. Do you know what stewardship is? Stewardship is where you are responsible for something or someone that does not belong to you. That's stewardship. And the Bible says everything that we have, including our very lives, is an act of stewardship, is a gift of stewardship. Everything that exists, including all our stuff, and everyone that lives on this earth, including ourselves, belongs to God. Your body, your intelligence, your talents, your money does not belong to you. Your children's mind, your children's bodies, your children's talents, your children's success, your children's money do not belong to your children. It belongs to God. And God has given these things to them so that they can feel the burden of responsibility to serve those in this world who are not as fortunate, who are not as blessed, who have suffered more of the curse of sin than they have, and therefore they're called to be a blessing. That is what you're called to do as a parent. Teach your children the concept of stewardship. Push them towards success so that they could be successful in being a blessing to the world. That's the third goal. So there they are, the three goals of parenting. Teach them to come under the right influence. Make sure that they don't avoid suffering but learn how to suffer well. And teach them the concept of biblical stewardship. But here's the honest question. How are we going to do this? Some of us have been parents for quite a while. Some of us have been parenting for over a decade, half a decade. Some of us has just entered into the realm of parenting, and this sounds pretty overwhelming, doesn't it? I know as I was preparing this sermon, I was like, man, I better start over. We can't start over, right? <laughs> They're already here. We can't do anything. How do we do parenting right? How do we reach these goals, especially when we feel like we've already failed? The answer leads me to my final point, the model of preaching. Let's read again verse 1 of our passage. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Now, even though Paul is addressing directly children, he's also indirectly addressing us parents as well. And he's addressing us with this message, parents. Parents, as you seek to reach these goals of having your children come under the right influence, teaching them to suffer well and to be good stewards, make sure, parents, that you do it all in the Lord. Parent your children, parents, in the Lord. What does that mean, to parent your child in the Lord? That makes no sense. Well, listen to what John Stott, a brilliant Bible scholar, how he explains it. He says this, During our childhood, our parents represent God to us and mediate to us both his authority and his love. 
According to Stott, the first people that our children are going to look to to determine the kind of person God is, is you, mom and dad. The first people your children are going to look to to determine the kind of God God is, is you. How you rule over them, mom and dad, will basically tell them how God rules over them. Your children, only primary frame of reference of the kind of God that God is, is going to be by how you rule over your children. So basically Paul is saying, parents, because this is your unique status before the eyes of your children, make sure you rule over your kids in such a way that is accurate to how God rules over them. Parent your children in the way that God would parent them. Here's the question. How does God rule over our kids? The same way he rules over us. He rules over us in Jesus. He rules over us in Jesus. If you think about these goals that I just mentioned in my second point, suffering well, coming under the right influence, and being a good steward, if you think about it, those are, those are things that God is still trying to teach us as adult Christians, right? right? Isn't that still part of the Christian life? What does that tell us? It tells us that God, our Father, parents us all throughout our lives. God will always be our parent. We will never graduate from, our par- from God's parenting over us. We do graduate from our parents' parenting over us. Once we're adults, they have no authority over us anymore. But God's authority is always upon us, which means God is always our parent, right? Even as adults, even when we're old and gray, even when we have multiple grandkids. So here's the question. How does God parent you? Does he parent you with a threat of judgment and condemnation? Does he parent you with a strict list of rules and laws that you have to obey? No. He parents us in the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that says even though we have failed in reaching all these goals, right, which is true, right? We have all sinned. We've all worshipped other gods. We have let the world influence us in such a way to where we have forsaken God. And not only that, we have done all we could to be as comfortable as possible, which means we've avoided suffering as much as we could. And not only that, we have taken credit for all the good things that have happened in our lives, right? Even though that is true of all of us, even though we have failed in hitting those goals, God our Father still loves us. Why? Because his ultimate child, his firstborn child, Jesus Christ, came to this earth to be the perfect child on our behalf. That's what the gospel says. Jesus came. And he never came under demonic influence to where he sinned and worshipped a false god. He never avoided the suffering he had to endure, even though he meant, it meant he had to suffer humiliating death. He never took credit for what God the Father was doing through him, right? Don't you remember him saying that in the Gospels? What I do, I do not on my own power, but on the power of my Father. I came not to do my own will, but the will of my Father. Jesus was the perfect child who hit those three goals perfectly. Jesus was the perfect child for us so that if we have faith in him as Lord and Savior, God looks upon us not as the rebellious child as we are by nature. He sees us as he sees Jesus, the perfect, beautiful, obedient child of God. And as a result of that beautiful truth, what does that do to us? It changes us, doesn't it? The fact that God still loves us even when we've been more rebellious, what does that love do? 
It makes us less rebellious, right? It makes us willing to endure certain sufferings and not be bitter, but better. It makes us to not take credit for what God is doing in our life, but give praise to God for what he's doing in our life, right? It makes us resist demonic influence and temptations to where instead of sinning against God, we obey God. You see, that is how God parents us, and that's how you parent your children. Parents, your children will fail you, and they are going to fail God. They are going to disobey you, and they're going to disobey God. They will come under wrong influence. They will try to avoid suffering. And if they can't, they will be bitter about it rather than better. And they will take credit for things, stealing from God's glory. How do you respond? You respond by showing them Jesus, their perfect substitute, the perfect child who lived the childhood that they could not live so that they can have faith in him, so that they would know that the father still loves them, So when they know that God still loves them and that you still love them, they become more and more like that perfect child. That's parenting according to the gospel. That's how you reach those three goals. Not through them being perfect and successful, but by them trusting in the one who is perfect and who was successful on their behalf. The more they have faith in Jesus as their savior, as their substitute, the more they will be that child that you long for them to be. It cannot be done through them. It cannot be done through you. It can only be done through Jesus, which means you must parent in the Lord. Parent in Jesus Christ. Because if you do, then your children will be the very blessing to the world because they'll be more like Jesus. And can you imagine with as many children as we have, they all grown up to be men and women who are like Jesus? What a blessing they could be not only to this community, to this city, And to this country, if they're scattered all over the country, or to the world, if they're ever doing other things for God in the world. Our world is desperately trying to find some way to make sure that the next generation flourishes the world rather than blow it up. We have the truth that can enable the next generation to do that. The question is, will you take advantage of that by believing in the gospel and embodying the gospel to your children? so that they can take on the mantle for the next generation to come. That is my charge to all of us. And I pray that you will take that seriously. Let's pray. Father, we're living in times where the young generation today are so lost, so jaded, so angry, and so bitter. Father, we see youth doing atrocious things. And Father, the only people who are to blame are us. Father, we need your grace and mercy so that not only would we flourish, but the next generation would flourish. Father, we want this world to be better. And the only way that we can do it practically is making sure that we're raising up the next generation in such a way that they would be a blessing to the world, not a curse. And Father, we know that you've given us the means and the resource to do it. You've given us your son, Jesus, the perfect child of God. Would you help us? to be more like him so that when our children see us, they would see him and that they would trust him and look to him as their hope, as their salvation, as their God and imitate him and be like him so that this world will be better off because of it. Help us to live out this calling. Father, I pray for all of our young parents in this room. I know many of them might feel overwhelmed. Many of them may feel like they're failing. Many of them feel like they're lost. And I also pray for those who will be parents soon. Many of them are anxious. Many of them are scared. 
But God, we know that you are a God of faithfulness and that you have given us all that we need to make sure that our children would flourish not only in their own lives, but in the lives of those to whom they will touch. And so, Father, give us that assurance and help us to be a church family that really seeks to love all of our children well so that this world would be so much better because of it. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're not going to give the Lord his tithes and our offerings. If you're visiting us today, we don't expect you to give. But to our members, let's give to God his tithes and our offerings.